Uh, let's read from Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses and their righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. And then we'll go over to John chapter 4. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that, they were, that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went through once more to Galilee. Now he had come to he'd go, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did all his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he this is the word of the lord thanks be to god uh, before we start uh talking through this really great story let's pray together 
Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for this time of Advent, of Christmas, um, and we thank you that as the light of Jesus shines on our lives, it exposes things, uh, things that you want to work on, you want to change and transform in us. So we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would be at work now, revealing, exposing, convicting, and bringing the balm of the gospel, the good news of the grace of Jesus to bear on our hearts as we sit under your word and listen to its authority. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, one of the best films of the early 2000s, I reckon, is a film called Idiocracy. You might have seen it, but basically the plot revolves around a very average guy called Joe, literally an average Joe, uh, who volunteers for a experiment in suspended animation. The experiment works a little too well and he wakes up 500 years in the future. He finds that the word world has become a very different place. In fact, the average IQ of the population has plummeted for various reasons. In fact, Joe is surprised to find that he is now, as average as he is, the smartest person in the world. And as such, he soon figures out that something has gone very wrong. Uh, one of the mega corporations of that time has managed to convince everyone that their sugar-saturated sports drink, Brondo, uh, is better than water at everything, from being the main thing that you drink to the best thing to even irrigate crops with. You can imagine that. Um, you might find, uh, unsurprisingly, that there is a massive food shortage, <laughs> dust bowls, and the global economy is crippled. Uh, despite plentiful liquid in the form of Brondo, the world is literally dying of thirst. Uh, the movie and this calamity in it uh, serves as a beautiful illustration for something that uh, I think the filmmakers and also we can see uh, as a big problem in our society. No, not an addiction to sports drinks. So maybe that is an issue for some people. Uh, the problem is a deep, gnawing, spiritual thirst. What do I mean when I say spiritual? Well, spirituality is a bit of a slippery word. You can define it different ways, but you could say that it refers at, at base level to a sense of connection with a uh, um, something bigger than ourselves that gives meaning and purpose. Right? A sense of connection with something bigger than ourselves that gives meaning and purpose. So in this sense, using it this way, um, everybody has a spirituality because we all look for meaning and purpose. We know that sugary drinks, uh, far from actually quenching your thirst, actually make you more thirsty, right? because of the high sugar and salt content. In the same way, the spiritual experience of many people is actually far from fulfilling and actually leaves them empty and thirsty for more. With this kind of spirituality, when times get tough, that, that lack of deep spiritual anchor leaves them unmoored and adrift in a sea of uncertainty. This year, has been a massive crisis for the globe. And it's been a moment, I guess, for many people to assess 
what their primary source of spiritual meaning is, to ask the question, am I actually tapped into something which gives the kind of deep meaning and deep purpose that satisfies me deeply and can serve as a anchor in a storm that can actually get me through hard times? Or am I actually addicted to the spiritual equivalent of Gatorade? Well, to help us answer that question, we're going to look closely at this story in John 4 and see how Jesus in this uh, encounter with this woman addresses three types of spirituality. Now, the first is a shallow spirituality. The second is a deep spirituality. And the third is a sustained spirituality. Okay, so shallow, deep, and sustained. It will help us uh, know where we are as we go through this uh, passage. So first of all, what does a shallow spirituality look like? This encounter with the Samaritan woman is super famous, one of the best-known stories in the Gospels, uh, where Jesus meets this unnamed Samaritan woman and, uh, and he enters in the conversation with her about spiritual water that truly satisfies. Um, but before we look at the offer itself that he gives her, um, we should ask why did Jesus feel like she actually needs uh, spiritual water? And we get that in verse 16 when Jesus asks her to go and fetch a husband. It's, uh, it's a question deliberately designed to invite her to open up to him about his, her private life. Uh, we, she, we find out that she actually has no husband. She's had five husbands before. And the man that he, she is now with is not her husband. Uh, the most common way of interpreting this background to the woman uh, that we might hear is that she is a sexually promiscuous woman. She's gone from husband to husband, from relationship to relationship, probably committing adultery along the way. And now she's cohabiting with a man outside of wedlock. Lots of people have seen it that way. But here's the problem. The problem is that while in our day, it's super common for people to go through multiple marriages, multiple relationships. In ancient times, in the time of Jesus, that was so uncommon because it was nothing less than economic suicide, particularly for women. Because in the first century, marriages was the, was the primary source of economic and social security for women. An unmarried woman had very, very few safeguards. And that's why the Bible, uh, we might know, is really big on uh, caring for widows because they were among the most vulnerable in society. Uh, a woman without a husband was without rights, potentially without income and without protection. So multiple marriages or de facto relationship was no one's idea of a good time. Much more likely, uh, her previous marriages had ended as was just as common in society in the first century uh, because the, her spouses had died or perhaps abandoned her. If that's the case, then her situation is precarious to say the least. Now, why is she living now with a man outside of marriage? Well, probably out of desperation. See, in those days, a prospective husband paid the woman's family a dowry in order to marry her. And rather sadly, the dowry often reflected how much 
the families considered the woman to be worth. Uh, it's a kind of a horrible thing, but that was how things were. Um, and so with every death or divorce, the bride price, the dowry would have dropped until her final desperate option after five marriages was to be with a man who probably actually wasn't willing to pay anything. Either that or she and the guy were too poor to pay for a wedding. So I don't think Jesus here is out to expose this woman's sordid past or to cause her embarrassment in any way. I, I think he simply met a woman who is desperately seeking something better than a shallow spirituality, whose experience in her life circumstances has left her thirsty for something better. Now, why is this the case? Why is her spirituality shallow? Well, it's not hard to imagine that in the midst of a personal security crisis, uh, her sense of meaning and purpose was at risk. Perhaps it was tied, like many were in those days, to um, her marital history. And so that had been tragically blemished and tarnished, leaving her feeling unvalued and worthless and, will and desperate for some sense of acceptance and security. Now, maybe we feel a bit removed from the situation. So let's look at it another way. Take yourself back to the beginning of COVID, uh, the early months of this year, uh, and imagine, and maybe it's not hard to imagine, that you have a good, well-paying job. But when the pandemic hits and the economy shuts down, you are let go. You take a hit, but that's okay. You find another job. It pays a bit less, but it's okay. But then you're unfairly fired. And so, you find another job, this time low paying and far below your skills, but that company goes out of business and so you're unemployed again. And finally, our desperation, you take a job in a restaurant washing dishes and you're paid cash under the table. You never even signed an employment contract. And if you also happen to be in the position of being an asylum seeker, you might not even be entitled to the dole. You are left in an incredibly vulnerable situation and, and sadly a situation that's no doubt true for many thousands of people across the globe this year how would you feel desperate anxious yes but more than that undervalued having had a, taken a hit to your self-worth your meaning and purpose in life has gone from contributing great value to society to simply doing what it takes to survive The definition of a shallow spirituality is a sense of meaning and purpose that quickly fractures under pressure. Now, many of us have been blessed to have retained work and, and done actually okay this year. But as the lockdowns took away many things from, from us that we uh, perhaps have found a sense of value and worth in, uh, perhaps the cracks have shown in your life in other ways. Did you find yourself increasingly cranky and irritated with your, with your spouse, with your kids? Did you find yourself outraged at authority figures? Did you find yourself teetering on the edge of depression? Did you find yourself overrun with anxiety? Using John's analogy from the last two weeks, as the temperature has turned up uh, on the pot of soup, <laughs> what kind of scum and muck has floated to the surface? of your life. 
the thing about spiritual thirst is that when our sources of meaning and purpose are, are, are wounded or, or taken away, then we don't necessarily then look for deeper wells of resource. No, we actually just find more shallow replacements. If your primary spirituality is about contributing value and that's taken away from you, you might just find a purpose in raging at those who took it away. If your spirituality comes from being in control of your life, then you might replace it with outrage at a government who has curtailed your freedoms. And if your spirituality has come from an enjoyment of life's pleasures, of being out and eating and drinking and having fun, then you might find it just is replaced with sitting on the couch with endless Netflix binges and Amazon Prime. This is the common experience of so many in our society, flitting between a myriad of, of pseudo-spiritualities, shallow spiritualities, and that given enough time, they just eat at our souls and, and leave us not just spiritually deficient, but sometimes even eventually dried up, dried out husks. Jesus didn't shine a light on this woman's life to expose and shame her. He did it because he wanted to bring her good news, that her search for something to anchor herself in um, is over, that she could have her shallow spirituality replaced with something that sinks down deep. So secondly, how can we find a deep spirituality? Now, now we can go back to verse 13, where Jesus offers the woman what she needs the most. Everyone, he says, who drinks from this water, it's the water that he gives, will be, oh, sorry, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What is Jesus talking about? What is this living water? And how does it grant a deep spirituality? Let me use a, a story from history to illustrate. Uh, in the 1940s, a young man named Langdon Gilkey went to China to teach English. And while he was in China, uh, the Japanese actually invaded the area he was living in and he found himself in an internment camp along with a number of other foreigners. Now, like a, a good Harvard University grad that he was, he began to take observations about what was going on around him. And he noticed that the harsh conditions of the camp brought out the worst in his fellow prisoners. Cruelty and selfishness abounded, and, and not just from the guards, but from the prisoners themselves and how they treated each other, how they grasped and hoarded resources. Uh, there were a number of ministers and missionaries there, and he noticed uh, and he himself was not a Christian, but a, a secular humanist. Uh, he noticed that the Christians there were no exception to this. In fact, the Christians often used their religion to justify their own bad behavior, as he observed. Gilkey was actually devastated by this because his education had taught him that uh, in times of hardship, hum humans would uh, rise to the occasion and unite to make things better. They would have a common goal of survival to work towards. But instead, the reality was that it was an every person for themselves situation. Except for one man. One man stood out 
in the crowd. And his name was Eric Little. Eric Little, you might know actually from the film, um, The Chariots of Fire, famous Scottish athlete, Olympic champion. Little uh, was actually post his athletic career had become a missionary too, uh, but his life drastically contrasted with his colleagues. He made the inmates of the prison camp his, his own personal mission. Every day he worked tirelessly to bring light, relief and generosity to those around him. Right up to actually the very end of his life, he died in the camp. So much was his effect on the place that Gilkey wrote in his memoir many years later, we don't believe we would have psychologically survived without him. That's quite something to say. Little seemed to have access to a source of comfort and strength that shielded him from being ruined by his environment. And not just that, he himself had become a source of comfort and strength for literally the whole camp. What gave Little a spirituality of such depth and life that even this crisis could not take it away from him. Well, he wasn't superhuman. He wasn't super spiritual on another plane from everyone else. He was simply a man who drank deeply from the well of Jesus Christ. Psalm 112 describes a person like Eric Little. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. For those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous, good will come to those who are generous and lend freely who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Wouldn't you love to be described like that? To have the sun shine in the darkest night, to never be shaken, to have no fear of bad news. Now, one way to read the psalm would be to think, okay, so if I'm a good person, if I'm gracious, compassionate, righteous, then I'll be okay in bad times. My, my goodness will carry me through. But actually, that's not what the psalm is saying. The roots of a person like this uh, are those uh, who have, the roots are in their hearts trusting in the Lord, verse 7. Trust in the Lord leads to the ability to be wellsprings of living water, even in the driest times. Eric Little trusted that his meaning and purpose, his spirituality, was not bound up in his circumstances, even before he went into the camp. The walls of the prison, his lack of freedom, his lack of basic rights, none of those diminished his sense of value or purpose. But they couldn't because they were, um, his, that source that he was tapped into came from something far greater than the camp or even the Japanese army or the war or anything else in the world. It came from the simple trust that he had in Jesus, that Jesus loved him, cared for him, and called him friend. He trusted that the love of God was more than enough for his deepest needs and would sustain him in the darkest times. And so his love for Jesus inevitably flowed out of him to others. He, he became a wellspring of living water, overflowing from his heart. He became a beacon of grace and compassion simply because he knew grace and compassion had been given to him freely. And you'll find that the deepest spirituality in those Christians uh, who 
have this kind of anchor even in the midst of the greatest storms, well, they have Christ and his grace on the forefront of, his, of their minds and on the tip of their tongues. That those sinners, Christ died for them, the godly for the ungodly to bring them to God. I don't know how many times during lockdown uh, my mind actually did not go to God's grace poured out for me in Christ. No, my, my mind instead went to how hard done by I was, how, how much I missed my freedoms, how hard my job had become, how uncertain the future looked, how tired I felt. That's the honest truth, many of the, much of the time. Uh, in those times, I'd crept into a shallow spirituality and I experienced the consequences of pride and self-pity and greed and discontent. And yet other times were different. Christ was present to me. I felt his presence. I, I yearned for his life and his grace. And I became, in those times, I, I think a wellspring for myself and others. So the question then is, how do, I, uh, how do we maintain and sustain and build the, 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 that experience, the experience of the living water of Jesus and, and put aside shallow spiritualities? Well, it turns out that deep spirituality, the type that Eric Little had, the type that I think we should all strive for, uh, has to be not just uh, attained but maintained and sustained. Deep spirituality also has to be a sustained spirituality. So how do you do that? How do you sustain a deep spirituality anchored in Jesus? Well, in some ways, the answer is obvious. Most Christians could give the right answer, you know, spiritual practices, meditating deeply on God's word, having a, a deep uh, relationship with, with Jesus and with God and the Holy Spirit through prayer committing to a Sabbath rhythm of spiritual and physical rest, right? Well, yes, yes, but we've got to be a bit careful because remember what Jesus called the Pharisees, the best Bible, the best prayer, the best Sabbath guys around, called them whitewashed tombs, painted nicely, tombs that have been painted nicely, live on the outside but dead and dry on the inside. So that means that it's possible to be incredibly disciplined in spiritual practices and yet still have a spirituality that's actually as dry as a bone. Spiritual practices are like drugs. Hear me out. Uh, taken the right way, they are life-giving medicines. But taken the wrong way, they can serve only to be poison to us, to more deeply embed attitudes of spiritual pride so the question is that we know we must maintain our spirituality and sustain it through spiritual practices but how can they be done the right way in a way which is life-giving not life-taking well uh, after jesus stunning revelation about the woman's private life he begins to unpack for her the secret to this the secret to sustaining a deep spirituality uh, you have this little um, to and fro with her about worship suddenly. It's a bit of a non sequitur. She seems to want to change the subject from her relationship uh, status. And so she um, asks Jesus about where the proper place of worship is. The Samaritan said it was Mount Gerizim and Jews said it was Jerusalem. 
And then with incredible deafness, uh, Jesus uses this non sequitur to pull her back to his main point. That the key to accessing the living water of eternal life is through worship of the one who has the power to grant it. William Temple, one of the great old divines, uh, wrote a definition of worship. He wrote this, worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind of his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion which our nature is capable. Where does worship begin? It begins for the first time or the millionth time when you hear the words of Jesus and believe in your heart that they are true, the same words that he spoke to the woman in response to her hope for a Messiah. I, the one speaking to you, am he. That he is our longed-for saviour, our longed-for source of deep spiritual nourishment, fulfilment. He is a Messiah. He is the Messiah, the one who would eventually hang on a cross, himself parched with thirst, even as his blood poured out like streams. This is the extent that he would go to deliver living water to the world. His death to deal with the problem of sin, done so that we could gain an identity as the beloved children of God, with richness of relationship and acceptance and affirmation and love and security, confidence. Worship begins when you grasp just how gracious a gift Jesus is. And as William Temple put so well, it's, it's that moment when you find that you adore him, when he becomes your best thought by day or by night. And when his purpose, his love, his beauty, his truth, his holiness begins to work deep down in your deepest parts and satisfy your deepest thirsts. When true adoring worship drives spiritual practices, that's when the Bible becomes alive with the glories of Christ. And, and when prayer takes you into a relationship with Jesus that sustains you even in the darkest hour, when Sabbath gives you rest, not just in body, but in soul. This is the key to having a sustained spirituality, sustained and deep. It's not just doing the Christian things, it's, it's actually worship. It's having a life where you're constantly coming back to who Jesus is and experiencing him afresh and adoring him. It's true that sometimes uh, the discipline of, of spirituality helps to, to bring that uh, back into your life when you don't feel like it. That's true. It's kind of a, it can be a, a, a circular thing, a, a rhythm. And yet this is true that unless our hearts are constantly being retuned to a song of worship, then we can't really expect to have the kind of depths that will keep us in good stead when the next crisis comes and it will come here at the end of 2020 is a moment for us to take stock and ask what is God spotlighting in my life where have I allowed my spiritual life to become shallow 
where do I need to come and drink again from the living water of Jesus? Over the last few months, uh, myself and John and Kat have felt God showing us that we need to actually drink deeply, more deeply as a church. That perhaps we have been too long satisfied with a shallow spirituality. So next year, 2021, we're going to commit to uh, theming the year around developing our spiritual life together. We're going to start in January 10th with a new series on spiritual formation, how to become a person who is formed by the worship of God, not by anything else in this world. Now, but you don't have to wait till January. Uh, You can start now. Take some time to talk and pray with your MC and be honest if you're willing. Um, Spend some time in prayer and reflection and let's all drink deeply from the well, the inexhaustible well that is Jesus. Thanks, family. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are worthy of our worship and our adoration. Fill us now. Reveal yourself to us in a way which captures our hearts and in turn captures our thoughts, which in turn capture our actions. And help us, Father, to become the kind of righteous, generous, compassionate people filled with grace to become wells of living water overflowing into our whole lives and to the people around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.